this afternoon, we deal with the doctrine of the Word of God, as it is summed up in Lord's Day 20. And there we confess, what do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? First, he is together with the Father and the Son, true and eternal God. Second, he is also given to me to make me by true faith share in Christ and all his benefits, to comfort me and to remain with me forever. After the sermon, let us sing together from hymn 47, the stanzas 2 and 3. Beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. The catechism brings out the intense personal nature of faith. You know, it's evident in the way that the catechism is filled with personal pronouns like me, we, us, or you. And we are dealing with things that we need to know so that we may live in the joy of our only comfort. Going back to what also confessed in Lord's Day 1. And this personal emphasis continues as we shift our attention from the big section in the first part of the catechism, or the second part of the catechism, which speaks about God the Son and our redemption. And we move on to the section about God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Now, It appears that as we begin this transition, there is not really all that much to say about the Holy Spirit. Only one short question and answer in our catechism. But at the same time, while it may seem a bit skimpy, if we think back over what has been dealt with in the catechism, actually you begin to realize that he has been mentioned numerous times up to this point. Just to give you a sampling, you know Lord's Day 1. We talk about the fact that the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, Christ assures us of our salvation. Or Lord's Day 7, it speaks about how the Holy Spirit works faith. And even in the previous Lord's Day, Lord's Day 19, it is mentioned that Christ, by the Holy Spirit, pours out his gifts upon us. So, So constant references sprinkled throughout the Lord's Days leading up to this point. But now, when we come to Lord's Day 20, yes, it may be very brief, one short question and answer, but rather than just kind of mention him in passing, or as part, you could say, of a bigger answer, here, finally, we get to focus fully on the person of the Holy Spirit. And as we do that, again, you see the personal character of our faith, and also, therefore, the comforting dimension of our confession, because the Holy Spirit is shown to be God's personal presence in our lives. And therefore, sum up the sermon as follows, that the Holy Spirit, God's personal presence in our lives, and we see this as we confess, first of all, the Holy Spirit is true God, and secondly, the Holy Spirit's personal presence in our lives. So first of all, then, we have to speak about the fact that the Holy Spirit is true God. If we were going to show that it is God's presence in our lives, we have to be clear, the Holy Spirit is true God with the Father and the Son. 
we need to see this clearly so that we may rightly worship also him, just like we worship the Father and the Son, and also we may better understand and also marvel at God's personal presence in our lives. Now, our catechism gives us several scriptural references to show that the Spirit is true eternal God, and it is very helpful just to kind of walk through these passages and to briefly reflect on these passages to show how also the statement that the Holy Spirit is true God is not something dreamt up by the church, but is firmly grounded in the Word of God. So our first reference, we're just going to walk through the passages there. The first reference takes us right to the very beginning of Scripture, Genesis 1, where we read how God, when he created the heavens and the earth, well, that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You know, it's almost a bit of an incidental mention of the Spirit. We don't read about him again in the next, yeah, in the next chapter, the rest of the chapter, but that indication there, the Spirit of God. Now, how does this show that he is true God? Well, in two ways. First, it shows he is true God because he was present already in the beginning, which points to his eternity. And in the second place, it shows how he is involved in the work of creation. And notice, it's only after we are told about the presence of the Holy Spirit there in in the, the beginning work of God's creation, that only then do we begin to read of God going further and and calling that whole chaos, you could say, at the beginning, because it must have been almost like a big blob, the heavens and the earth. That's all we're told. And then, then God begins to organize things. Then he begins to order things to bring that chaos into a cosmos, into a beautiful whole. But that is the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is present there. The Spirit brings everything to life. Also is expressed in our Nicene Creed, when he speaks about the Holy Spirit, he is the author and giver of life. And so the fact that the Spirit was present at creation, and he is involved in the work of creation, and is the giver of life, well, all these things, they are things that belong to God. They point to his divinity. Now, our catechism makes a very big jump, and jumps next to Matthew 28, verse 19. It's a recognition of the fact that while we do have mention of the Spirit throughout the Old Testament times, really, the Lord did not reveal too much more about the Spirit. It was with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ that also, as as you say, there is a further revelation about God the Father, then God the Son. At the same time, we learn more about God the Holy Spirit. So there is a real bursting out of revelation in the coming of Jesus Christ, not just about him, but also about the Holy Spirit. And let me think in particular of that command in Matthew 28, to go baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now we wonder, well, how does that testify to his divinity, to him being God? Well, it does so, because he is mentioned in one breath with the Father and the Son. They are equal. Equal, that they can be mentioned together, equal in their authority, equal in that these three distinct persons are the one true eternal God. Third reference is the account of Ananias and Sapphira. Of course, that story is well known. I'm sure the children remember it, having heard it in the Bible reading at home, but also at school they would have dealt with that, where they sold a piece of property and they pretended to give all the money to the church, but they had kept back for part for themselves. 
Now that particular passage shows that the Spirit is God in two ways. In the first way, place, Peter speaks to Ananias and asks him how he dared to lie against the Holy Spirit. And then in the next sentence he says, Ananias, you have not lied against man, but against God. You see, he interchanges the Spirit, God. You lie against the Spirit, you lie against God. So, in effect, he calls the Spirit God. But in the second place, the divinity of the Spirit is also shown in the severity of the punishment that is applied. For it's one of those striking things in the early church. You know that they lied, and Ananias lied, he maintained his lie, fell dead on the spot. Not much later, his wife comes, maintains the lie, falls dead on the spot. Seems a bit severe. But if we think back to the Old Testament times, we can think of, of similar incidents where people, you could say, fell dead on the spot when they dared to defy the holiness of God. They acted as if God did not exist or couldn't really punish people. We have the example of Nadab and Abihu. They were struck down with fire shortly after we are told that they offered unholy fire. They fell dead on the spot also there. Well, why then you could say, well, the Lord had just revealed his majesty at Mount Sinai. He is true God. He had appointed Aaron and his sons to be priests. All the regulations had been given of how they should go about their priesthood. And in some way they dared to defy what the holy God had just revealed. The Lord, on those critical moments when you could say there has been an outburst of revelation, when people dare to challenge what he is doing, he lets his displeasure be known rather dramatically. Same thing also that happened when that story is there about the ark having been captured by the Philistines, and it ends up back among the people of Israel. And you know that the men of Beth Shemesh, they looked into the ark, and some 70 of them died right then and there. You see, they should have known. You don't touch the ark of God. And yet they did. By defying the holiness of God, he showed severe punishment. Something also kind of repeated later on when the ark, they bring them to Jerusalem on a cart. And you know that Uzzah tries to hold the ark steady, falls dead on the spot. The ark should never have been carried on a cart. It should have been on poles carried on the, on the shoulders of the Levites. See, the Lord lets it be known when he gives these, these clear revelations, these outbursts of revelations or these symbols of his presence, think also of the ark, and people defy that holiness, he will not tolerate those kind of things. Now, here we have that too, early New Testament church. The bloom time of the church, everything was supposed to be so good. The Holy Spirit was present, and here were people who were defying the holiness of God, lying before the congregation, lying to God, and God showed that he indeed is God. The Holy Spirit is God. By lying against the Spirit, they received the same kind of punishment as those in Old Testament times who had defied the holiness of God. Now the final reference is taken from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, where he writes, Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now this recalls the way the Lord took up residence in the tabernacle, later on the temple, coming down in the cloud of glory. Well, now the Spirit upon Pentecost, he had come down upon the church. The church takes the place of the tabernacle, the, the presence, shows the presence of God. 
Those who defile the temple, they defile the presence of the Holy Spirit, they will face also the consequences. Because now you're sinning against the Holy Spirit when you defile the temple. And defiling and also sinning against the Spirit is sinning against God, and that receives the appropriate punishment. You see, the severity of the punishment brings out that we are dealing with God in this case. Now, there is one additional point that needs to be considered briefly, although the Catechism does not really dwell on this point. Perhaps it reflects the time when it was not necessary to stress this either. But the point that is helpful to stress in our age when there's all this talk about gender and gender confusion, even with the way people speak about God, whether God really is a he, well, when we speak of the spirit, we have also him referred to by the male pronoun as a he. Notice, eh? by the male gender. Now, that's important. God is a father. We have the son and the Holy Spirit. Not, not an it. Some people have turned the Holy Spirit into some kind of energy, and some people even have gone in the direction of saying, well, the Holy Spirit is kind of the feminine character of the Trinity. That's not how Scripture speaks. It refers to him by the male personal pronoun. But also that's important because that highlights for us the personality of the Spirit. He's not an it. It's not an energy. A person. Just It's hard for us to father. You know, when we hear the word father, we can... Picture a person, even though we can't picture God, he's invisible. And when it comes to the Son, we can picture a person, especially since he came into our human flesh. But when it comes to to the Spirit, it's hard to picture that or him as a person. And yet, we learn that the Holy Spirit is a person by, by various things that bring out his personality. Just think, we read also together in gospel of john that the lord jesus said he would send a helper like himself now a helper that that is a personal activity it's a person who does that a person helps you also comes out that the spirit is a person when we read how the spirit can be grieved you know we can get other people upset by our actions well the spirit can be grieved if we do not walk in his ways or His name can be blasphemed. In the account of Peter's vision of the sheet full of unclean animals, we read how at one point the Spirit spoke to him. Notice the Spirit. And and elsewhere, we think of Paul. He was forbidden by the Spirit to go into Asia. Now, I mention these things to highlight that as we think about the Spirit, he is God, but also we should think of him as his personality. And that is out. he comes out, yes, as the Father, Son, there he's also, when it comes to the spirit, we use the male personal pronoun. Now, the review of these various passages of scripture impresses upon us the confession that the spirit is God with the Father and the Son is well-founded. In the end, that knowledge cannot be filed under the category of interesting information No, but as we think about that, eh, that the Spirit is true God, that means that he is also worthy of our worship with the Father and the Son. You know, after all, we have been baptized into the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
Don't think of that too often. You know, we think, oh, we should always praise the Father, praise him through the Son. But, you know, as we will sing of some of those hymns afterwards, there are also are hymns where you could say where you specifically take the time to praise the Holy Spirit. He is worthy of our worship always because he too is true God. But seeing then that the Holy Spirit is true God, that he is worthy of our worship, makes us ready also now to see how, by the Holy Spirit, we have God's personal presence in our lives. As we begin the second point, I draw attention to how, when it comes to the Son of God taking on our human flesh, we, we speak of the incarnation. Because the divine son, he, he limited himself to that one person and he walked around as a human being amidst his fellow people. So that way he is not really present in all of us. The Lord Jesus Christ is one distinct person, even though he's also still true eternal God. But now it's different when it comes to the Holy Spirit. Because he never took on one particular form and that way he dwelt among men. no. But as also we read already a few times, we talked about the fact that he, he dwells in us. So we talk about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And, and through the Spirit who is present in all God's children, who dwells in the church collectively, but also the believers individually, Christ is personally present. God is personally present. Now again, the Catechism shows us where we find this in the Scriptures. First, there is the reference to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. In this portion of the letter to the Corinthians, Paul had called his readers to holy living. He said, no longer be involved with pagan worship, which also involved sexual immorality. And the reason he gave for that is that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. Now, what is so remarkable in these words, is that the Corinthians, they were said to have the Holy Spirit, even though they did not display in their actions that they had the Holy Spirit. They were still involved with pagan worship. But the reality is that those who belong to Jesus Christ, they have received the Spirit, and the Spirit is one who dwells in them. That's God's presence in their lives. We talked about that indwelling aspect. And this is reinforced by what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 21, or sorry, 2 Corinthians 20, verses are out here. Second letter to Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, where he says, The Spirit has been given as a guarantee of his promises. So God has given all these promises of, of forgiveness of sins, life everlasting, and the new heaven and new earth. But the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is given to the believers collectively as church, but also individually. That's the down payment. That's the beginning of all the blessings coming our way. And further, Paul writes in both Galatians 4 and Romans 8, that we are children of God, and he sends the spirit of sonship into our hearts. Notice, the spirit of sonship. The spirit dwells in us. And he even says, it makes, the spirit makes us say, Abba, Father. It shows that the spirit is dwelling in us. Same point is driven home in his letter, letter to the Ephesians, where Paul writes that those who believed were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So it's the beginning 
of the many blessings coming our way. But now already we have the Holy Spirit. Notice hey, that as the passages speak about the gift of the Holy Spirit, none of them speak about the gift of the Spirit as having come in some kind of dramatic occasion. It doesn't say that every person who has the Spirit probably had some kind of Pentecost experience, you know, where that dramatic day came when the Spirit came and, it was, and a big crowd gathered together because of all the commotion that they heard. No. Remarkable, even as we said earlier, many of the people who were said to have the Holy Spirit, they did not show that they had the Holy Spirit. And yet Paul said that they had the Spirit. Now Paul usually followed this, this through by exhorting his readers that they have the Spirit. Now because you have him, therefore you should also live in the way of the Spirit. But the reality is, whether they showed it or not, they had received the Spirit. Now based on Scripture then, as the Spirit is true God and He has been given to us, we can say that He is indeed God's personal presence in our lives and He has been given to us for a threefold purpose. And the first is the most basic. The Spirit is the Spirit of regeneration and faith. He has been given to us to unite us with Christ through faith. Think of the words in John chapter 3 when he spoke to Nicodemus about being born of the Spirit. And the Catechism also refers to 1 Peter 1 verse 2 where Peter addressed the exiles as elect. Now this is interesting, an interesting sequence here. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. That sequence is quite significant here because it really lays out beautifully, you know, how God has gone about choosing and those whom he has chosen. He also sends the Spirit who prepares them to confess Christ. See the same point also made in 1 Corinthians 2 where Paul wrote about the way of the gospel that can only be understood by those who have received the Spirit. Even 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, where he says that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, well, at certain points then we learn how the Spirit works, faith, that makes us share in Christ and all his benefits. You know, there are passages where actually, so we see that Spirit works, faith. There are some passages that seem to flip it around, that speak about faith and then receiving the Holy Spirit. Think of Paul speaking in Galatians 3, where he writes about receiving the Spirit by faith as opposed to by works. Galatians 3, verse 14, he writes, that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So that seems to flip it the other way around. But when we keep in mind that this is said by the same apostle who wrote about the role of the Spirit in making us confess Jesus Christ, we realize we're not dealing with a a contradiction. He's, He's really writing about faith and the work of the Spirit, you could say, in different contexts and really showing the marvelous work of God that you can look at it different ways, different aspects to bring out the full truth. And in the end, 
The Spirit and faith go together. It is the Spirit that works faith so that we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and faith in Christ opens up the way for further spiritual blessings. It just keeps going around. That's the marvelous way of the Spirit. In the end, as the Lord Jesus explained to Nicodemus too, it's like the wind. You can't quite understand it. You don't know how it all works, but it has its effect. That's how the Spirit works when it comes to faith. Now it is this talk of the spiritual blessings that come to us through faith, which are given by the Spirit, takes us to the next purpose of the Spirit for which he has been given to us. For not only does the Spirit work faith, it says the Spirit comforts us. Now it's in John's account of our Lord's words on the night he was betrayed that we hear the Spirit repeatedly being called the helper. You know, footnote might say comforter, counselor. Now, already we read in verse 17 how how the Spirit dwells in us. As we think about this, the Spirit is our helper, our comforter, counselor. Really, you could say one of the most blessed benefits of having the Spirit, how he helps us in our Christian life. He doesn't just bring us into the Christian life and says, now figure it out for yourself. He never leaves us. He's always with us. And really, as we think about that, that is something that we desperately need, be it in a situation where we are deeply troubled by our sins or or where we face great hardships in life. And the way the catechism is so very to to the point when it speaks about the comfort of the Spirit may lead us to conclude that there must almost be something like like a, a magic touch, you know, that the Spirit comes to us and, and touches our, ner- our nerves and our anxieties and just take them away. But when we think of the places in the Gospel where the Spirit is called a helper, we, we realize it's not so much just that. You know, we shouldn't get kind of mysterious about it. But we should recognize how how the Spirit goes about his work. We can actually learn about that. Because, as we think also of what, what we read in the Gospel of John, you know, there he said the Spirit would come and he would bring to remembrance the things that the Lord Jesus Christ had taught them. So, you see, what the Spirit does is he, he brings our attention, he draws our mind to the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us and our salvation, all that he is still doing, even from the heavens. We talked about some of that this morning. Now, in that respect, you know, at times we may almost experience that, let's call it somewhat spontaneously, in the sense that you sit there in life and you sit there with your particular burdens. Everyone has their burdens. You know, it's almost too hard to give examples because the one person's burdens are different from the next, and each has his own internal struggles. And then what happens? As you sit there as a child of God, it can happen that all of a sudden a portion of Scripture pops into your mind. Maybe one of the psalms you've learned somewhere, or another hymn, a well-known Christian song, pops into your mind, filled with Scripture. And then we think, hey, that's Scripture that comes to me. And Scripture, where Scripture comes from? And that's from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit He has inspired the scriptures and all the servants who who wrote things down. You see, that's the marvel of the Spirit. There we sit in the difficulties of life and our burdens of life. And there all of a sudden, the healing wind of the Spirit comes in terms of the scriptures. 
and the marvelous thing is that even as we sit there and we think, you know, if it doesn't seem to just come to us, well, sometimes we just have to grab our Bible and all of a sudden we start looking at a certain passage or four passages and there we find it. And we might even find quite a different verse than we were looking for, but we find it. We find the comforting power of the Holy Spirit. And even if we can't figure it out, maybe someone comes to us, maybe a friend, maybe an office bearer, and a minister or an elder or a deacon, they open scripture with us, and all of a sudden, there we feel the healing wind of the Spirit comes to us to soothe our troubled souls, to give us hope again, to give us direction in the midst of our burdens. And then even when it comes to our prayers, you know that there are times we want to pray about a certain difficulty, and we don't even know how to say it anymore. We sit there almost without words. Well, then we think of the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. That when we don't know what to say anymore, then the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. So we lose our words, but the Spirit is lifting up our concerns to the Heavenly Father through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And then the result will come. And you hear that people say that so often. They go through very difficult times, very sad times. And yet, somehow, as they are overwhelmed with the Word of God, there comes again that acceptance, that trust, and the confidence, and the peace that passes all understanding. And how does that work? As the Spirit's work. As He works with His healing breath of His Word to renew us, to refresh us, to enable us to go on. And then the third purpose for giving the Spirit. Namely, to remain with us forever. That was the promise the Lord Jesus made to His disciples. That He would go but he would not leave them alone. He wouldn't leave them as orphans. And because the Spirit would be with them, they also did not need to be afraid of whatever situations might come their way. And he was there speaking especially about being persecuted for their faith, imprisoned. He says, don't, don't, don't be anxious. I'll be with you through my Spirit. And the Spirit will tell you what to say. So you, can't, you can't anticipate the situations you face in life, and what you would say in this and that situations. No, the Spirit will give us what we need at the right time. Always near to us. And then we think of Psalm 139. You know, no matter where we go, the heights of heaven, the depths of Sheol, the Spirit is there. Always near to His people. Also brings to mind other psalms that speak about the Lord being near to His people. You know, we think of Psalm 23 that we sang. And then, as New Testament church, where we know more about how God works through the Spirit, we sing them with renewed joy, with renewed intensity, because we know of the Lord's nearness through His Holy Spirit. And so the Scriptures then teach us that the person of the Spirit is true and eternal God. He is therefore to be worshipped with the Father and the Son. And the Scriptures also impress upon us that the Spirit in the Spirit, God is personally present in each of us. And should there be any doubt in our heart that this is true? Well, just pay careful attention again. Well, every time you see a baptism and the name of God is put on the forehead of a child, baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But then also think of how at the end of every worship service you are sent home. Last words. Also this afternoon will be that, indeed, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So, you see, God isn't saying, 
All right, for a little while here, we were sitting together. And here I was present in your midst, and there the Spirit was. But now, now you go home alone. No! We don't go home alone. We go home with God present in us through His Spirit. Amen.